Amen. Well, back in uh, 1937, the, the great uh, Golden Gate Bridge was completed. It cost $35 million, which in today's dollars would be about $514 million. And it was built in two stages, the first slowly, and then the second much more rapidly. In the first stage, 23 workers fell to their deaths. So the project ground to a halt because fear paralyzed the workers as they helplessly watched one after another of their co-workers plummeting to the water far below. Well, eventually, Joseph Strauss, the project manager, pioneered an innovative, movable security net to hang beneath the construction workers. And amazingly, during phase two of the project, only one worker was killed due to a fall. The work proceeded 25% faster than it had during phase one. You see, doubt can be crippling. It's a serious ailment. According to an extensive recent survey of top CEOs and CFOs conducted by Liberty Mutual, quote, increased productivity is the greatest benefit of an effective workplace safety program. In other words, when people feel secure, they're more productive. The principle is very much applicable to salvation. When we feel secure, we're better Christians. I want you to consider this illustration from a 19th century Anglican bishop. It really makes the point quite well, I think. He said, take for an illustration of the benefits of assurance he's talking about, two English immigrants and suppose them to be sat down side by side in New Zealand or Australia, give each of them a piece of land to clear and cultivate, let the portions allotted to them be the same, both in quantity and quality, secure that land to them by every needful legal instrument, let it be conveyed as freehold to them and theirs forever. Let the conveyance be publicly registered and the property made sure to them by every deed and security that man's ingenuity can devise. Suppose then that one of them shall set to work to clear his land and bring it into cultivation and labor it day after day without intermission, intermission or cessation. Suppose in the meanwhile that the other shall be continually leaving his work and going repeatedly to the public registry to ask whether the land is really his own, whether there is not some mistake, whether, after all, there is not some flaw in the legal instruments which conveyed it to him. The one shall never doubt his title, but just work diligently on. The other shall hardly ever feel sure of his title and spend half his time in going to Sydney or Melbourne or Auckland with needless inquiries about it. Which now of these two men have made most progress in a year's time? Who will have done the most for his land, got the greatest breadth of soil under tillage, have the best crops to show, be altogether the most prosperous? Anyone of common sense can answer that question. I need not supply an answer. There can be only one reply. Undivided attention will always attain the greatest success. It is 
much the same in the matter of our title to mansions in the skies. None will do so much for the Lord who bought him as the believer who sees his title clear and is not distracted by unbelieving doubts, questionings, and hesitations. You see, doubt is unbelief. And unbelief is particularly offensive to our Almighty God. Charles Spurgeon said it eloquently, Every other crime touches God's territory, but unbelief aims a blow at His divinity, impeaches His veracity, denies His goodness, blasphemes His attributes, maligns His character. Therefore, God of all things hates first and chiefly unbelief wherever it is. You know, the early believers are a great case study in doubt. There was a lot of confusion and unbelief during this transitional age. You know, obviously during the time of Christ, there was quite a bit of unbelief. Jesus frequently rebuked the Jewish leaders of his day for their unbelief, even sometimes the disciples for their weak belief. But as we continue our walkthrough of church history with the early church, you know, we, we spent seven weeks focused in on that first church in Jerusalem that formed after uh, the many souls were saved on the day of Pentecost after Peter's sermon. We looked at the model church and what characteristics of the true biblical church really are. But now we're going to move forward and march onward in the early days of the church. And when we uh, come to Acts chapter 3, we, we see what happened next, okay? The church was formed, it was founded, they met regularly, they did all of those things that we said represent the model church, but what happens next? And what we see is the power of God early on, once again manifested in an attempt to get the attention of the Jews, to let them know that what was happening is legitimate. This is indeed a mighty move of God, part of His plan of the ages. Jesus had predicted that the early apostles would perform signs and wonders, and so had the ancient prophets, if you look at the Old Testament, that there would be signs and wonders someday. And this is precisely what was happening as the church established itself as the new, authentic move of God on earth. And God knew that the Jews, who had worshipped Him through the law for more than a thousand years, a much different way to approach uh, God, the creator of the universe, he knew that they would need to be sure that they could count on him. They needed him to validate his promises to them. Could God be trusted? Could they really come to him apart from the law? How can they be sure? You know, 2,000 years later, we face the same questions. How can we be sure that our relationship with God is secure? How can we know for sure that we will go to heaven when we die? Do we have to wait until after we die to find out? Or can we be sure right here, right now? Essentially, we're asking, as the Jews did in the first century, can God be trusted? That's really what we're asking. And assurance, this great doctrine of assurance, is the birthright of every believer. You don't have to live in doubt. I believe the scripture teaches it is a sin to doubt your salvation. 
like that quote from Spurgeon. It's basically kind of looking up at heaven, shaking your fist in the face of God and saying, I know you said you saved me and gave me eternal life, but I don't really believe you meant it. I question your integrity, God. I don't know if you can really give me eternal life or not. See, whatever is not of faith is sin. You don't have to go through life wondering. You don't have to wait until you die to be certain where you're going to spend eternity. You can be sure right now. And so I want to talk about this doctrine of assurance as we look at the encounter at the beautiful gate there at the temple in Acts chapter 3. Fascinating story, and I'm going to read it for us now just to kind of put it in perspective. And then I just want to give you five steps in the pathway to assurance. So again, this is after the church was founded in Jerusalem, and Luke tells us, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to, take al to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Sound familiar? Same way Peter started his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his, <clears throat> his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Notice the emphasis on faith. We're going to come back to that. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer... He has thus fulfilled. Remember, the Old Testament prophets clearly predicted that the Messiah would suffer. Didn't give all the details, but it, it's clearly taught. Isaiah 53, for example. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> verses, uh, verse 19, there is a key passage in the flow of thought in Luke, because remember, this is very early on in the church, uh, still just weeks in. 
and it's still very much a Jewish-flavored church. And Peter, like the other apostles, believed the promise of the Lord that he would come back and establish the long-awaited kingdom for Israel. And they thought it was going to happen any day, and certainly in their lifetime. And so Peter here speaking to Israel in the context, to the national Israel, and he's saying, change your mind about what you thought and recognize that this Messiah, very same thing that he said in, the first, in chapter 2 in his first message, uh, God has made this Christ whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And, but when he says, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that's a sort of code language, if you will, for the kingdom. He's talking about the coming kingdom. And, and many people refer to this as the second offer of the kingdom. But notice that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Remember, you have to hear and believe the gospel to be saved. Paul would later explain it this way in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing the gospel and hearing by the word of God, right? Uh, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel, those who follow as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning everyone away, every one of you away from your iniquities. In other words, if you'll just come back to him, he will bring the kingdom. And indeed he will. And that message is repeated time and again, not just in Acts, but also throughout the epistles, the future return of Christ. So uh, the, the theme that I see running through this encounter and this response of the man and the response of the crowd is one of faith and ultimately one of salvation. So uh, salvation, the first thing we need to understand in the pathway to salvation is that salvation is not earthly, it is heavenly. In other words, if you want to be sure, you've got to stop focusing on this life because salvation by its very essence involves being rescued from an eternal penalty, hell, and being delivered into an eternal blessing, heaven. Salvation, contrary to what a lot of people think, is not about having your best life now or making a new best friend or overcoming depression or feeling happy. Salvation is about being rescued. That's what the word means. It's the word uh, soterios, the noun sozo, the verb. It means to be rescued or delivered. But from what? Well, it's to be rescued from the penalty of sin, which is hell. The reason so many believers doubt their salvation is because they focus on earthly things, feelings, circumstances, their situation, all of which are subjective and prone to change. If your assurance of your eternal destiny is based on your feelings, you're going to doubt your salvation every day. So if you want to have assurance, it begins by understanding the very nature of salvation. It's a once-for-all settled matter of our eternal disposition before a holy God. Either we're still under the penalty of sin, lost and on the road to hell, or 
we've been redeemed, that penalty's been paid on our behalf, and we've received instead the free gift of eternal life. And our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Our home in heaven is secure. We are declared positionally righteous before a holy God. We're uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit. All of those things that happen the moment we believe the gospel. So when you understand that it's an eternal issue, then you begin to recognize there's nothing on earth that can impact God, the eternal creator of the universe's promise and, and eternal commitment to you. So if you look at verse 6, it's interesting. Peter contrasts this earthly perspective with the heavenly perspective. And he said, silver and gold I do not have. In other words, Peter explained there's much more to life than physical things like money and even healing, frankly. Remember, the healing in this story was not the end. It was the means to the end. It was God's way of validating the gospel, as Peter's sermon makes clear. So we need to recognize that we're all in an eternal uh, predicament. The Bible says there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty or the wage for that is death. And Jesus describes this death, lest there be any doubt, as an eternal torment. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, he will say, to those who have not received from him the only available payment that can remedy our predicament of being under the penalty of sin. He goes on to say, these will go away into everlasting punishment. The same Jesus who stated clearly that sin leads to everlasting punishment also stated that faith alone in him leads to everlasting life. He said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And in the same section of the Gospel of John that we read this morning, uh, where he's talking about the bread of life and the living water. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And it's very clear if you read the whole context there that eating the bread and drinking the, the water is a metaphor for belief. Belief. John 6, 47, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. <laughs> That's the whole point of this metaphor about food and, or bread and water. In John 5, he had put it this way, Most assuredly, I say to you, who, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, the moment you believe the gospel, you hear the gospel, Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you'll trust in him, he's the only one that can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life. You hear that, you say, yes, I'll believe in him. I'm trusting in him for my eternal life. In that instant, in that split second, you pass from death to life and uh, you'll never come into judgment. Uh, in fact, in Greek, it's the perfect tense, meaning it has this continuing, unending uh, effect of a completed past action. So eternal salvation from the penalty of sin happens at a moment in time, but it lasts forever. If it wasn't eternal, it's got the worst name Jesus could give something. <laughs> I'm going to give you eternal life. Now, it's not really eternal. I'm just calling it that, but I'm giving you eternal life, right? 
He didn't say that. It's eternal life. So the pathway to assurance begins by understanding the eternal nature of salvation. And then step two is to remember that salvation starts with God. See, God seeks the lost. And He will use miraculous events to get their attention if He needs to, just like we saw at the beautiful gate. In Acts chapter 3, verse 6, he goes on to say, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It starts with God. Jesus had told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would be calling people to God throughout this present age. He said in the upper room, when he talked to the disciples about his soon departure, he said, When He, that's the Holy Spirit, has come, He will convict the world of sin. Proverbs 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God, through His Spirit, is roaming the earth, seeking lost people. Peter tells us, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. Remember, repentance does not mean a ceasing to sin. A lot of people see the word repent and they think, Oh, that means stop sinning. So all i got to do to have eternal life is stop sinning. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> if that's the requirement to go to heaven, good luck. There's not a single verse in all the Bible that says you've got to repent of your sin to have eternal life. Repentance just means change your mind. You have to change your mind about God and recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You know, you used to think you were good enough. You, know, you used to think... You didn't need a Savior. You used to think you were better than most, that somehow God grades on the curve and that you're in the upper percentile. So, of course, you'll get in. But you have repented. You've changed your mind about all that and recognized that you are hopeless and helpless. You cannot save yourself. That's the reason Jesus went to the cross. I mean, think about it. If mankind could save himself based on his own merit or effort, why did Jesus have to die a cruel death on the cross? But he paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we could never pay. And so he died on the cross for our sins. And God is not willing that any should perish. It starts with God. The Bible, Jesus himself said in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God, from the very outset of creation, loved humanity, his highest pinnacle of creation, made in his image so much that first of all he warned us against the one thing that could kill us see god made us as free moral agents we have free will otherwise we're just a bunch of robots and so therefore we had to have a choice and then knowing that we have a choice god loved us so much he said you know don't eat of that fruit of that one tree because you'll die and i don't want you to die of course we marched right over took a great big bite, sinned against God, and brought sin upon ourselves. And God, at that point, did not just sit back, shake his head sorrowfully, and think, wow, boy, I'm going to miss them. I sure loved them, and man, I'm going to miss them. And wait for us to come knocking and say, uh, could you help us out here? We got ourselves in a little pickle. God immediately took steps to begin his redemptive plan. He made the first move. In fact, Genesis 3.15, when God is talking to the serpent, Satan, he says, someday the seed of this woman, capital S, is going to crush your head 
And, and he did at Calvary, and one day it's going to be final when he's cast into the everlasting fire that was prepared for him. So God took the first move. So the pathway to assurance recognized that eternal salvation, that the eternal nature of salvation, that it's eternal. Secondly, remember that salvation starts with God. And then realize, thirdly, there's only one Savior. Eternal salvation is not the result of some buffet line where people can pick and choose their own pathway. That's the way a lot of people look at it, like a Luby's cafeteria. You know, I like fried chicken, I like meatloaf, I'll take the Salisbury steak. You know, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, you know, pick your pathway. That's not the, the message of God's revelation to mankind. Only one Savior. Only one Savior. Um, new life can only come through Christ. Notice the way Peter describes it in the passage we read. They, he says that they killed the prince of life. The prince of life. Now, this is the New King James version. Uh, other English versions translate that word, a prince there, as originator or author, which is probably a better translation. It's the word Archegos, it means founder, originator, source. So think about it. You killed the source of life. You killed the originator of life. You killed the author of life. In other words, life can only come through this Jesus. He purchased life when he rose from the dead and defeated death. Uh, that's what makes him uh, God. Uh, in Hebrews, we read, we see Jesus, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And then Hebrews goes on to call Jesus, using that same word, <clears throat> archegos, the captain of our salvation. I like that translation, the captain of our salvation. It can only come through him. You, know, you can go knocking at lots of other doors, religious doors, seeking a remedy for your sin problem but they're going to lead to nowhere, right? Later, Peter would be called on the carpet by the Jewish elders and leaders and scribes that were still very active in that day about this miracle, and he would put it this way in his defense before this group. He would say, I tell you, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation and no other. And if you want to have assurance, you have to realize there's only one Savior. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except uh, through me. Going back to John 3 and the context of his encounter with Nicodemus, uh, when he, whom he met by night and explained that he's got to be born from above, not just born from his mother's womb. He's got to experience that second birth, which only comes by faith. Jesus goes on to say, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Do you believe in the Son? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you? Have you placed your faith in Him? You have eternal life. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. But notice he goes on to say, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Remember, everyone's either a son of wrath or essentially a child of God, a son of God, the Bible talks about. To as many as received him, to, the, to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. So you're adopted into the family of God the minute you 
became a Christian. Many of you believed in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. If you're not, then you're still a child of wrath. You're still under the wrath of God. And uh, that's why we need to believe the gospel. First John says, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And as Paul said, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So you recognize the eternal nature of salvation, the eternal issue here. It's not about earthly things. It's not just about being content or feeling better. It's a serious matter of eternal consequence. Secondly, you remember that salvation starts with God. Third, you realize there's only one Savior. And then comes the pivotal moment. You respond in faith. You respond in faith. Faith alone saves. And ultimately, the antidote to doubt is faith. I mean, faith and doubt cannot coexist in the same object. You can't believe something and not believe that same something at the same time. Now, you can believe one thing and have doubts about another. We see this in Scripture. People that were saved said, would say things like, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief about this matter over here. You know, So we all do that. We all have moments where we're struggling, life crises, things like that. So we believe that we're saved. We are assured that our home in heaven is secure. We're not doubting our salvation, but we yet sometimes find ourselves with weak faith, as Jesus often rebuked. Uh, the disciples about. But you cannot believe something and not believe something, the same something, at the same time. <laughs> Have I made that confusing enough? <laughs> uh, faith and doubt are mutually exclusive. So, for example, if a person is unsaved and they're coming to Christ to be saved and they say, Dear Lord, I believe in you, but I really don't. But I believe in you, but I really don't. They're not saved. <laughs> All right? It's when you say, Lord, I believe in you. You're the only one who can save me. I know I'm a sinner. You paid the penalty for my sin, and I'm trusting in you as the only one who can give me eternal life. Bingo, you're saved. So notice that Peter, who was standing outside the temple preaching to a bunch of religious people, did not focus on customs, traditions, regulations, rules of Judaism. He didn't talk about baptism, which is, in fact, part of the model church. It's an important step, but it doesn't save you. He went back to before Israel, back before Israel was even a nation, and, and went back to Abraham, and he said, you need to do what Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? He believed. <laughs> he believed. So you want to be sure? Well, have faith in the right object. Stop trusting in yourself, your own goodness, your own worthiness, your religion, your heritage, your baptism, your church membership, your whatever it might be, and trust in Jesus Christ uh, as the only one who can save you. Remember, when I commented on this when I read the passage, Peter said, through faith in his name, through faith in his name, Later, Paul, in describing this doctrinally, would say that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, 
recognize the eternal nature of salvation. Remember that salvation starts with God. Realize there's only one Savior and respond in faith. And then, even though a lot of people have done that, they're saved, because the gospel has been so obliterated and attacked and messed up and confused and distorted, uh, like I talk about in my book, uh, Getting the Gospel Wrong, many believers still lack assurance. I was that way. You know, I was saved as a young boy at age six, and then I was a part of a Baptist church upbringing, and although I thank God for my Baptist heritage, and I learned a lot, I learned a lot about the Bible, and I learned a lot about the end times, and I, so forth, but there was a lot of teaching that lent itself to doubt and causing me to doubt my salvation. And, um, and that's not, I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush, but that is somewhat of a characteristic of some Baptist churches. I remember years ago when I was still in college, uh, the church that uh, would lead the denomination, remember the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest, or at one time was the largest denomination uh, in, in America, a Christian denomination, and uh, 15, 16 million members. Um, of course, now it's having all sorts of problems, both doctrinally and politically and all otherwise. But uh, I remember this one church that would lead the denomination in baptisms every year. They were in Phoenix. I mean, thousands of people were getting baptized throughout you know, the, the year. Thousands upon thousands. Well, somebody dug a little deeper and realized that they had the same people sometimes getting baptized five or six times a year including deacons and, you know, because every service, the preacher would get up and say, if you've sinned, then you're not really a Christian. You didn't mean business. You did, it didn't take. You need a do-over. You need to do it again. So they dutifully walk the aisle again, make some non-salvific commitment. You know, this time, Lord, I'm really never going to sin again or whatever it is. Think they're saved. Well, because they're now saved for real this time, they'd have to get baptized again because their other baptism didn't count because it was before they were really saved. So when you stripped all that away, it wasn't all that impressive when people are getting baptized five and six times a year. See, And I, I would often doubt my salvation as a young man, you know. Wonder, well, you know, people would say, well, a Christian wouldn't do that. A Christian wouldn't think that, you know. Um, and then I really began to understand grace and recognize that I didn't save myself. I can't unsave myself. So we can be sure. So the final step in the pathway to assurance then is simply to rest in his promise. To rest in his promise. And, and Peter kind of says this to the, the Jews that were listening to him as they watched this miracle of the man at the beautiful gate. He goes again back to the prophets, but he says, Him you shall hear in all things. In other words, He's told you you're saved if you believe in him. Just rest in it. Stop questioning it. Some people say seeing is believing, but when it comes to salvation, hearing is believing. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, as I said. Jesus spent three and a half years trying to get people to listen to him, to really hear him. And you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, when God spoke from heaven and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. Or some translations say, listen to him. Even God weighed in and said, would you guys listen to him? And when I find people doubting their salvation who have trusted in Christ and professed their faith in him, I just want to shake them and say, listen to Jesus. The same Jesus that you trusted to save you, now you're doubting him? Well, that seems 
strange. You'll trust him with the most important thing in life, your eternal destiny, but now you're going to doubt him day by day? Reminds me of what Paul says in Act, I mean in Romans uh, 8, uh, when he says, I love this passage, um, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Remember that the next time you're struggling with some crisis, you know, health, finances, you know. The same God who saved you is more than capable of solving whatever may come your way. So rest in his promise. You know, have you believed what Jesus said? If you believed it, you're saved. And then just leave it at that. You know, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. When you understand that it's an eternal issue, then you, as I said, you begin to realize there's nothing on earth that can impact God's eternal promise. And that's why Paul said, What shall we say then? In that same passage I just read from a second ago. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You want to be sure? You want to rest once for all in your assurance of salvation? There's no greater certainty in the world than the very words of Jesus Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Now, either he meant that or he didn't. I think he meant it. Uh, he was either telling the truth or he was lying. I think he was telling the truth. Uh, and again, when you go through life doubting his promise, it's like you're calling him a liar. First John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. How many of you have believed in Jesus for salvation? Then on the authority of God's word, we can tell you, you can know that you have eternal life. Not hope, not think, not keep your fingers crossed and we'll see one day, but know. In the last letter that Paul wrote, he said, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Going back to that same 19th century Anglican bishop that I quoted in, at the beginning, we'll close with another very powerful quote from him. Let us remember that assurance is to be desired because of the present comfort and peace it affords. Doubts and fears have power to spoil much of the happiness of a true believer. Assurance goes far to set a child of God free from his painful kind of bondage. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt, a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease. The great work, a finished work. And all other businesses, diseases, debts, and works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid in evil things, in every condition content. Uh, 
for it gives him a fixed fixedness of heart. It sweetens his bitter cups. It lessens the burden of his crosses. It smooths the rough places over which he travels. It lightens the valley of the shadow of death. It makes him always feel that he has something solid beneath his feet and something firm under his hands. A sure friend by the way and a sure home at the end. So there it is, the pathway to assurance. Recognize the eternal nature of it. Remember that it starts with God. There's only one Savior. You respond in faith, simple childlike faith. And then you rest in His promise. So what's the takeaway? Well, it's that final point. Rest in His promise and live like you know where you're going. That'll change your whole perspective, won't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this encouragement and reminder of the simplicity of the gospel and yet the importance of assurance. And I pray that if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice that isn't sure, that today would be the day that either for the first time they place their faith in your Son and our Savior for eternal life or, having already done so, they really rest in your promise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this last song together.